We've recently been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Many of you have been here for the bulk, if not all of that, whole entire series. And uh, today we are in chapter 15. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the topic of the resurrection. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to close out with this morning as we finish out chapter 15 in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you'd like, you can go ahead and turn there with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of you will be able to see this. Some of you can't just because of where you're sitting. But I'm holding up here just a little seed. Uh, it's a sunflower seed. Now, I want you for a moment just to try the best you can to uh, kind of step out of your knowledge of everything that you know about plants and seeds and those kind of things and imagine that you'd never seen a tree, you'd never seen a plant, you'd never seen anything that produced any kind of fruit or any kind of vegetables. And imagine this is the first time you've ever even seen a seed. Now, would you, in your wildest imagination, even come close to imagining that a little tiny seed like this, a sunflower seed, would produce a plant with a stalk four, five, six feet tall with a big, huge, beautiful flower that would ultimately be, uh, the seeds would be uh, eaten by baseball players and fishermen far and wide. Would you have ever imagined that a little tiny seed like this would ever produce such a thing as that? Would you ever have imagined looking at a little tiny seed you know, for a garden plant or for, even for a tree, having never seen those things before. I mean, in our wildest imaginations, we would not even come close to envisioning that a little seed would produce something like that. It, it boggles my mind to think of any farmer who doesn't believe in God. Because when you begin to look at the intricacies of nature and how, how uh, uh, seeds replicate themselves and how birds and bees and, and uh, pistols and stamens and pollen and all those things work together to just replicate day after day, month after month, season after season, ongoing. It's amazing how God has fashioned this creation. But we would never imagine a little seed like this would produce the things that it produces. Only God could do that. Only God could accomplish that kind of a thing. Well, when we look at the topic of resurrection, when we begin to see here, especially what Paul says as he writes this letter to the church in Corinth, and as he begins to unpack the details of the resurrection in this chapter, uh, he gives us things that, information that, that answers some of our questions, uh, and then he gives us information that only brings about more questions. Uh, we find here in Scripture that God tells us a lot about the resurrection, but he doesn't tell us everything. The one thing we can cling to, however, is that just as we look at a seed and cannot fathom what it possibly could produce, we look at the resurrection and see that only God could do such a thing as this. And so Paul takes a whole entire chapter in this letter to the church in Corinth, and what he does is he unpacks details about the resurrection. On one end of the scale, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. On the other end of the scale, he talks about resurrection of the followers of Jesus at a day that's yet to come. And so you look back, and you see the resur res resurrection of Christ that's already occurred. You look forward, you see the resurrection of the followers of Jesus that is yet to come. That's what Paul begins to deal with. Now, whenever you look at this passage of Scripture, let me just kind of rehash a few things that we've covered so far, because I think they're going to be important as we close out this chapter. If you look back early in chapter 15, what you find here is that Paul places a lot of emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. In fact, look at verse 3. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. If not, you can see the overhead. Verse 3 and verse 4, Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. He says, For I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. My wife Susie, she uh, years ago before we were ever married, she was teaching, I think it was first grade Sunday school here at this church, and um, she had a little group of first graders, and uh, they came to this passage of scripture, and um, some of the kids had memorized it, and so she asked one little boy whose family is not in our church today, so I can share the story, and she said, well, what is first Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, would you like to, to read that verse? Or he may have quoted it. And he said, for I deliver to you, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the strippers. That was the way he, uh, that was the way he read it. So it's according to the scriptures, all right? So when we look at this, Paul, he's talking about the resurrection. He, he's going to take a whole entire chapter to talk about the resurrection. And the thing he establishes is that this is not just something that is peripheral in nature. This isn't something that is kind of an add-on to, uh, to your Christian walk. Paul says when you look at your life, you may be consumed with finances, consumed with family issues, consumed with relational needs. You may be consumed with the future or the status of your, you know, your job. You may be consumed with all these other things. And you may be tempted, Paul says, to put the resurrection of Christ to the side and you may even come on Sundays and you may be looking at this saying, you know what, Brooks, I wish you would have preached on this. I wish you would have preached about money. I wish you would have preached about uh, relationships. I wish you would have preached about something different. Because I don't see the importance of the, of the whole issue with the resurrection. Paul would have said, no, it is the backbone. <laughs> the resurrection of Christ is the backbone of our faith. In fact, look at what he says a little bit further in chapter 15. Uh, look at this passage in verse uh, 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. In other words, he says, everything I've told you in my 18 months in Corinth, he would say, was a waste of time. If Jesus has not been risen from the dead, everything I've ever preached was in vain. In fact, your faith that is so precious to you, Paul would say, if you take Jesus' resurrection off the table, it's nothing. It's worthless. Your faith carries no value whatsoever. It is, it is complete and total vanity if Jesus was not raised from the dead. He says this is the backbone of your faith, the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20, look at what he says. Moving a little further. He says, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead. He says he has been raised, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And so Paul spends time talking about the resurrection of Jesus. He spends a lot of time, first part of chapter 15, establishing in the face of those who would deny it, and there were some in the church, that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead, just as he had preached and proclaimed. But that was not the only resurrection. Paul also says there was going to be another resurrection. This time he focuses it on the believers in the church in Corinth. Look at what he says, verse 22. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now some would cling to that verse and say, well, you know, this must teach that everybody's going to heaven. It does not teach that. He says, in Christ, understanding, in that context, all those who know Jesus will be made alive. There will be a coming resurrection of those who are followers of Jesus where they will be bodily, physically resurrected again. Now that raises a lot of questions, right? We did a dive class recently on heaven and uh, man, it's probably one of the most popular classes we've done in a long time in dive and people loved that class and uh, people have already taken that class, started using it in Sunday school. I mean, they just love the topic of that class on heaven. And when you look at the resurrection, that's what it deals with. The resurrection of believers in Christ has everything to do with our spending time with God forever and ever and ever. But it raises questions, you know. For some of you, you might think, well, what will the resurrection look like? 
I mean, what's it going to be like? I mean, is this, you know, is, is it going to be like a big race <laughs> up to the sky? I mean, is there anything we need to do to get ready? What's it going to feel like? I mean, we're going to be aware of what's going on. You know, who all is going to go? How long is it going to last? Is it just kind of a temporary thing or is it going to last forever? You may have all these questions. Some of them Paul's going to answer here in the rest of chapter 15. Other questions you've got, you just got to wait and see. It's like the seed that you, you can fathom what it's going to become in some ways. God treats the resurrection that way with us as well. He gives us information that we need to know, but he also leaves much for us to experience when that day comes. In the midst of all those questions, I think the bigger question should be, does the resurrection really have any importance for my life today? Does it really? Because for a lot of Christians, it doesn't. And the answer is, it should. <laughs> the resurrection has every bit of importance for our lives the daily details of our lives today paul's going to deal with some of that as we begin to unpack here here's why here's why i think it, it carries the utmost importance in our lives the reason is this that everybody spends forever somewhere everybody there is not a person in a seat in this building today who will not spend forever somewhere there are those that will try to teach an annihilationist perspective on eternity that when we die, we are annihilated before God and we cease to exist. That is not biblical. It is erroneous. It is heretical. Everybody spends forever somewhere. There are those that believe that when a person dies and their body is placed in the grave, then the grave is the end. Their life is over. They only have that span of life on this earth, however many years that may be. And from the birth date to the death date in between was all there was to enjoy and to experience. And when their body is laid in the grave, they cease to exist forevermore. That is not biblical. It is erroneous. It is heretical. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite. The Bible teaches us that everybody spends forever somewhere. Your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your children and you and your boss and your greatest friend and your worst enemy, everybody who's ever lived, from those that have made the biggest headlines in history to those that the world never even knew existed and everywhere in between, every single person who has ever lived in eternity, from Adam all the way down to the last person who will ever be created and born, is going to spend eternity somewhere. And when Paul begins to unpack the details of the resurrection, what he does is, is that he begins to raise the bar on the life of every Christian, but also he raises the bar in the life of every person who has chosen not to follow Jesus Christ as well. So let me just lay out a few things before we dig into this chapter, some things that we need to be reminded of. Number one, the resurrection is going to apply to believers and non-believers as well. The, the resurrection that comes is not just for Christians. Every single person will be resurrected. Every single person will experience this, and we'll cover this here as we move through this message over the next few minutes. Every person, whether a follower of Jesus or an enemy of Jesus, is going to experience the resurrection. Now, for the believer, for the Christian, for the person who's laid down their sin and said, God, I need a Savior. Forgive me, Jesus, take over. For the person who's chosen to follow Jesus, that resurrection is going to come at the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 deals with this. So let's take a look at what it says. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, for the Lord himself, he's not going to send a representative. He's not going to send an angel. Jesus himself will come. It's called the rapture. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul is speaking here about the resurrection of the saints, of the followers of Jesus. Jesus, you may not feel like a saint. 
right? You may have this mindset of, of saints that, you, you know, was grafted in you, for, you know, early on that you see that as a you know, person who gets a necklace made after themselves, after their likeness. No, you are a saint, according to Scripture, if you have given your life to Jesus. Paul says, for all the saints, those who follow Jesus, this is their resurrection. He says, when Christ returns, the dead will cry, uh, in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain, he says, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, I didn't have this next verse there, but if you've got your Bibles, you can read verse 18, and it will say, and so encourage one another with these words. And this is a message of encouragement. I mean, this is really good news because for us to be followers of Christ, to know that there is a day yet to come when Christ is going to come back for us, right? And we're going to be raised, we're going to be resurrected, and we're going to spend eternity with him. That is very good news. Now, you, now you look at it, you think, well, well, Brooks, how does all this begin to fit? You may have a loved one who's passed away. You went to the funeral of that loved one. You heard very good words that were said about them. But the thing that was most important was that there was a place in their life when they had trusted their lives to Christ. They had trusted Christ as their Lord, as their Savior. They placed their faith in Jesus for forgiveness. When they died, their spirit went to be with the Lord. Paul says that, uh, as he speaks about that, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. So when your loved one passed away, if they had a relationship with Christ, instantaneously, their eyes closed in death here, and they woke up on the other side in the presence of God himself. In their spirit, they were in the presence of God. Their body, however, was placed in the grave. You may have been there to see that. You were there at the service. You were there at the funeral. You were there at the graveside. And you saw the body as it was placed in the grave. Their spirit went to be with the Lord, but the day will come, according to God's word, when their body will be raised. And Paul's about to deal with the details of this. Their body will be raised and will be reunited with the Lord. It will be changed, it will be transformed in a way that only God could fully know. And forever they will be in the presence of God. That's what Paul's speaking about here. It's the rapture, and at the coming of Christ, when he comes, he will rapture those who know him. Those who are alive will be caught up in the air. Those who have already died, who knew Jesus, their bodies will be raised. We'll see the details of this here in just a moment. And this is very good news. But what about those who don't know Christ? Remember, resurrection is not just for christians it is also for those who don't know jesus those who don't have a relationship with god will also experience resurrection as well I mean, this may not be of great importance to you right now but i promise you it will be one day i promise you that it will be of great importance either when you stand before god or when the harsh reality uh, comes across your heart and your mind that you've got loved ones who are standing before god unprepared and revelation chapter 20 tells us a little bit of what that looks like for that day, for those who do not know Christ, when they're resurrected, they stand before God. Verse 11, he says, and we looked at this last Sunday, that I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. Interesting that that's the only distinction that John here makes in, in this passage, the great and the small. <laughs> you know, everybody is equal at this stage, standing before God. There is no president, and there is no you know, school dropout. Everybody is equal on equal grounds here. He says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them. Everybody spends eternity, spends forever somewhere. He says, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. 
And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Yeah, this, this is the stark reality for those who don't know Jesus. This is the harsh reality of what is yet to come. That once this life is done, all bets are off. All second chances are off the table. It doesn't matter what religion you may have been raised in. It may have taught some doctrine related to purgatory or some form of working off your sins. That is absolute heresy. You do not find that in the pages of God's Word. There is no second chance. Scripture says in Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And you've just read about it. There is, a, there is a resurrection of the saints. There is a resurrection of those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And whenever we come to this place in life for the person who does not know Christ, I promise you, nothing else is going to matter. As they stand before God to give account of their life, and the books are open, and all of their deeds are laid out before God who already knows everything to begin with, and those deeds are nothing but evidence A and evidence B and exhibit C and exhibit D, endless lists of that life that failed to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior, as an act of their will, chose not to follow Jesus. There will be no second chance. And this will be the absolute most heart-wrenching, devastating day in history for those who do not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Nothing else will matter at this point. And the separation from God in hell will be eternal. It will be bodily because they have been raised. It will be physical, and it will be very, very real. You know, this would be problematic if I made all this up. I could be accused of being one who tries to scare people into heaven had I only made this up. But this is truth. This is truth. This is reality for family members and your family who do not know Jesus if they don't come to him. This is reality for friends in your, in your circle of influence if they don't come to Jesus. This is reality for your enemy, and I promise you, should you be there to observe on this day, you would not wish this on your worst of enemies. And so when you look at resurrection, everyone will be resurrected. The followers of Christ, to life with God forever, those who do not know Jesus as Savior, will be resurrected to judgment, ultimately before God. Well, Paul begins to unpack in chapter 15 some of the details of the resurrection, specifically of those who know Jesus. And so having said all this, let's go ahead and jump in now. Verse 35 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I'll say, I'm not going to cover every verse in the rest of this chapter today. You can read these. I'm not going to take any verses out of context. I don't do that. Uh, but you can read these on your own. It is a lengthy passage of Scripture. And I want us to pull out the ones that I think are most pertinent to what we're looking at today as we read Paul's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of what is to come for the resurrection of the followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 35 through verse 38, he says, but someone will say, how were the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? There's almost an air there where Paul is dealing with some skepticism, with arrogance, and with uh, perhaps even just some outright hostility from some that are questioning the resurrection. Paul's response is, you fool. He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. There's this analogy of the seed. He says, that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be, but a bare grain, maybe of wheat or something else. In other words, you don't, you don't sow uh, you know, a watermelon. I mean, you don't 
plant a watermelon in the ground. You plant the seed. And then, and then God is the one who produces, ultimately, that fruit that comes of this. Verse 38, he says, But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds he gives a body of its own. Paul is talking about some of the details of the resurrection of those who know Jesus. One of the things he's, he's communicating here is that when a believer is resurrected, when the rapture comes and the believer is resurrected, their body is going to be different. You're, as a follower of Christ, your body is going to be different. It's not, and this is good news for some of us, it's not the same old body, right? It's not just kind of a revamp, you know, uh, you know um, uh, refurbished <laughs> edition. It is not that. But at the same time, it's not a body completely unremoved from your former body as well. You know, you're not going to be like some alien form, right? And nobody knows who, who you are. Your body is a brand new body, resurrected body, and yet it is, it, to some degree, it is still somewhat related to your former body. Let, let me just say this. When Jesus was resurrected, right? He was resurrected. Paul mentions in this chapter, chapter 15, that over 500 witnesses saw Jesus after he was resurrected. What did Mary Magdalene do? We won't rehash the whole story out of the Gospels. What did Mary Magdalene do when she saw the resurrected Jesus? She came and she clung to him, right? He had a physical resurrected body. She knew who this was. <laughs> she recognized who he was, though he was already resurrected and, had, and, and, and was there in her presence. Whenever, uh, after the resurrection, whenever Jesus is on the beach there, and he's, he, he's got a bed of coals, he's preparing breakfast, there's Peter out on the sea, right? He sees him, he calls him in, Peter comes in, and they have breakfast there. Peter recognized who he was. He, he knew who Jesus was after the resurrection. I mean, he wasn't some you know, person that could not be identified any longer. Peter knew exactly who he was. You look at the Mount of Transfiguration in Jesus' ministry. There's Jesus on the top of the mount. you got Moses and Elijah that appear after their death. Now, the resurrection is not taking place yet, but they were, they were clearly recognized. They were clearly, clearly recognized. And so what Paul seems to say here in this passage of Scripture is that all the details are going to be up to God. But when we are resurrected and our bodies are going to be raised as believers... We're going to be new creatures. It is a resurrected, transformed, changed body, and yet, to some degree, still related to the former body. Paul goes on to say, notice what he says, if you look a little further, in verse 42, he begins to deal with some of the qualities of the resurrected believer. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, but it is raised an imperishable body. In other words, in our physical life on this earth, we have a start date and an end date. <laughs> You know, we have a date when we're born and a date when we die. When we're resurrected, we will never taste death again. Paul says, verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. I've been a part of a lot of funeral services. You've been, I'm sure, to your fair share of funeral services. Some that were gut-wrenching, some that were heart-wrenching for you to be a part of. And you were reminded of the harsh reality that death is an enemy. And that sin brings death just as the Bible says. And as you stood there, you saw the body of someone who meant so much to you placed in a grave. And you were reminded of the truth of what Paul says here. That our bodies are sown in dishonor. That, that person and we ourselves most likely are going to come to the place where because of death our bodies are no longer fit for this, for this earth. They'll be buried and yet Paul says the day will come for those who know Jesus when that body will be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. You know, every person who sees their life come to an end because of some injury, some illness, weakness, reminded, funeral homes, hospitals exist. Why? Because 
because our bodies are sown in weakness because of sin. But for the believer, when it's raised, it's going to be raised in power. Paul says it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And so he mentions that the body is imperishable, this raised, resurrected body. It's, it's raised in power, it's raised in glory. Look in verse 53. He says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. I mean, it is a, it is a prerequisite. You, you see, whenever, whenever you think of the glories of heaven, that there is no sin in that place. It's the presence of God. When you think of a person inhabiting the place called heaven, it is only fitting that, that our bodies not be the same as they were, reflective of weakness, reflective of sin, illness, injury, shortcomings. No, it is only fitting that for us to be properly fit and prepped for heaven, that the life of the believer, their body must be resurrected, transformed, and changed. Paul says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality, he says. Listen to what Billy Graham had to say when he talked about the resurrection. He says, the body that lays decaying in the grave may have been worn out with age, abused by disease or harm, or broken by an accident, but in the resurrection, that body will be raised in glory. See, that person, when they died in Christ, their spirit went to be with the Lord, but this day is yet to come when their bodies will be resurrected. Billy Graham says, our limited minds cannot begin to fathom what will transpire in that moment. But we do know that our resurrected bodies will be free of all infirmities, that we will know nothing of physical weakness. Limitations imposed on this earth are not known in heaven. We will have a habitation from God that is incorruptible, immortal, and powerful, having been sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. We, not be able, we may not be able to comprehend this now, but our bodies and our minds, our understanding, will be illuminated by Christ. You know, the day is coming when all this is reality for the believer. <laughs> and man, it is going to be a very, very good day. Verse 50, Paul goes on to say, moving back just a few verses, he says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit, or, or the, <clears throat> the perishable inherit the imperishable. This is a must. For the believer to be raised and transformed is a must for that body to ultimately inhabit the very dwelling of God himself. You know, th this terminology, when Paul says that Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It, it reminds me of the conversation Jesus had all the way back in John chapter 3. It, it was a nighttime conversation. Jesus and probably the greatest religious leader of his day, a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, um, was, was one who was obviously searching. And, uh, and so hearing the things he'd heard about Jesus, he arranges for this encounter, this conversation with Jesus one night. Nicodemus was a part of a religious group that would, have, that would deny Jesus as being God. Nicodemus was a man who was searching for truth. Jesus would have a conversation with him, kind of the, much the same terminology. Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, he's saying, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so as, as Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus, he's painting this picture that, that a relationship with Christ is a must for a person to know God and to go to heaven. Flesh and blood cannot inherit it. There must be a place where we come to know Jesus personally, where we are born again. 
He goes on to uh, further in this chapter, and he talks more about it. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus says that, so whoever believes uh, will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Now, whenever Jesus says this, I didn't come to the world to judge the world, that sounds a little bit, it sounds a little bit odd. Because we know Jesus is judge. But when he came this first time, he did not come to judge the world. Why? Because the, the world is already judged before God. The world is already condemned before God. People are already born in iniquity and sin. We are already born without a Savior. We are already in need of placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came the first time, that first Christmas, and he lived his life and he carried out his ministry, he did that not coming as judge, he came as Savior to proclaim himself as the Messiah, himself as the gospel, so that all who would trust in him would be saved. So he says, I didn't come this time to judge the world. I came so that the world could be saved through me. But the day will come when those who don't know Jesus will stand before him as judge. The Revelation 20 passage is a passage that lays that out. That when Jesus comes again, when he comes the second time, and he steps foot on this earth, and everyone will know who is King of kings and who is Lord of lords. Everyone will know that he is God. Everyone will know who is in control. Everyone will know who calls the shots. And so he says, I didn't come the first time to judge. That day will come. But I came to offer salvation. I came to offer a second chance that all might ultimately know me. You know, you look to... Paul's letter again, chapter 15. Look at what he says in verse 51, verse 52. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, we, we don't have everything figured out about the resurrection. God didn't tell us everything. But I can tell you this. He says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Speaking to Christians. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, reference to the rapture, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. He goes on to verse 54. He says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, Death is swallowed up in victory. <laughs> oh, death, where's your victory? It's almost like a taunt. Oh, death, where's your sting? Paul says the sting of death is sin. See, for the wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. He says the power of sin is the law. You see, it's the law that doesn't save us. Doing good never makes us right with God. It's the presence of the law that shows us that we have a real tendency to fall short. The power of sin is the law. But Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us, what, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I preached a message a couple of weeks ago entitled, So What, Now What? I said the greatest question you can ask after a sermon, after a message is, so what? You know, what does this mean to me? And the second best question you can then ask is, well, now what? <laughs> if this is important, what do I need to do about it? Paul lays out all this, all this detail about the resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 58. He says, now, now here's what you need to do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. He says be steadfast. It's like a reference to, to be, be firm in your, in your faith. Don't let the, the next uh, smooth talking 
teacher, preacher come along that's going to rattle you and sway you away from what is true. He says, no, you need to be steadfast. The day is going to come when, when, when you will die, your spirit will go to be with, with the Lord in, in heaven, and he will come back for you, and your body will be raised in a way that you can't fully understand today. So be steadfast in your faith. Hold firmly to Christ. He says, be immovable. Be steadfast in your convictions. Do not let anyone lead you down another path. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why would he say that? Because everybody spends forever somewhere. And so if we as believers, if we really believe what the Bible says about, about sin, about death, about heaven, about hell, about the resurrection, then there is no reason we should not always be abounding in the work of the Lord. There is no reason with a church this size, in a community this small, that virtually everybody in this community cannot at least see the evidence of Christ in our lives and also as well hear the message of the gospel as we proclaim it to them. There's no excuse. There's no reason why a city like this, with the numbers of churches that dot this city, filled with people who claim to have a relationship with Christ, there's no excuse why a city like this cannot hear the message of the gospel and stand before God with at least having had an opportunity to have responded. So we must always abound in the work of the Lord. And then he says, also realize, this is going to be hard for you. This is going to be tough. You're going to be beat down. You're going to get persecuted. You may lose things. You're going to lose your comfort if you stand for Christ. But understand and know that your toil is not in vain, he says, in the Lord. Because the day will come. Who's to say that your boldness, speaking into the life of a person who didn't know Jesus, who's to say that one day they'll stand before God and it will be a First Thessalonians 4 Beautiful rapture into the presence of God as opposed to Revelation chapter 20 standing before him in judgment because you spoke truth into their life. He says it's going to cost you. But your toil, he says, is not in vain. A few years ago, I led a dive class. It was an evangelism training class that we did. And one of our, one of our projects was to do questionnaires around town. Most of them were here on the island. Some of them were in town. Through that class, we did 48 different opinion questionnaires. Very low-key, not invasive at all. Um, I, I don't believe you need to beat the door down for a person to share the gospel to them. If they don't want to hear it, and that's their, respectfully, that's their choice. But we need to give them an opportunity to hear. And so we had people from this class go and do these questionnaires asking people's opinions on religious matters. Of the 48 people that were basically interviewed for these questionnaires, most of whom lived on the island, 21 of them, when they were asked if they'd come to the place in their life where they felt they had a relationship with God would go to heaven when they died, 21 of those 48 said either no, they had not come to that place, or they really hoped they were there. So do you think you've come to a place where you're going to go to heaven, spend eternity with God there when you die? Almost half of them said, mm, no, I'm not there. I don't know, and I don't have that assurance. Almost half. When they were asked another question that said, if you were to stand before God today, and if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Listen to some of the responses that came back. One person said, well, I'm a, I'm a nice person. I try to always help others when I can. Now, imagine that you were standing before the God, the creator of the universe. And as you stand before him to give account of your life, and him in all of his holiness, 
all of his perfection, all of his glory, and all of his power. You, little you, stands before him. And, and he asks you, if he were to say, why should I let you in to the glory of heaven, into my presence forever? And the best that you can come up with is, well, I'm a nice person, and I try to help others when I can. That is a sad unpreparedness for that day. Another person's response was simply, I tried. Another person, if God were to ask, why shall I let you into heaven? Their response was, and, and this person lived right here on the island, a mile from our church, because I'm good, and I think everyone will go to heaven. Another person's response, I don't really know what I'd say. One other person trusted in reincarnation, that they would just be somehow reproduced in another form, though there's nothing in the Bible that gives any inkling that that would take place, nor if you ever talk to someone from a belief system that believes in that, they're doing everything they can to get off of that wheel, <laughs> not to stay on it. But then there was another person who filled out a card, one of the questions asked, do you believe in God as a supreme being who watches over you and to whom you ultimately will answer? And their answer was no. And the person who did the interview and the questionnaire jotted a note on the back. They said that this person is teaching a class on religion at a local day school. But not sure that she even believes in God. Everybody will spend forever somewhere. Including you. So if you were to stand before God. And if he were to ask you, why should I let you in? What was your response?